of, of everybody that's been named um, or alluded to by the author of Hebrews, we've, we've, we've looked at, at, at Daniel and his three friends. They were alluded to, not named. Uh, Michelle, Azariah, and Hananiah. And, and the author has uh, others in mind in verse 34, but they're really difficult to identify. If you've read through the text, uh, you can see how you're not sure where in the Bible that's found. And, uh, and some of them, I don't believe, are in the Bible. Uh, I believe they're elsewhere. And we'll take a look at that. Let me get my, my second podium here. It's better for my neck. All right. Um, back in verse 35, regarding uh, women that received uh, their dead back to life again, uh, we can at least mention one for certain. Can anybody, does anybody know what it is? Old Testament. Old Testament. The widow's son. Good, yeah. First Kings 17, 21. Uh, we know Elijah raised the widow's son. Uh, but then he goes on to refer to those who were tortured. And there doesn't seem to be any biblical reference to people uh, being tortured to renounce the faith. Uh, the author was apparently referring to those who lived during what is called the intertestamental period uh, between uh, the book of Maccabee, or Malachi rather, and Matthew, the intertestamental period. Uh, and I think that the specifics of this passage, of what he says here, are from the book of Maccabees. Uh, and, and I have other people agree with me. I think you will when we're done explaining this, uh, but also that it's not a biblical reference, but an extra-biblical reference. I find that encouraging. Okay? I find it encouraging because the author is not confining the people of faith and faithfulness to those who are mentioned in the inspired word of God. He extends it to the faithful uh, wherever and whenever they lived. Why do we care? Because we want to know that regular people can experience God as well. Amen. Yeah, how many of you guys have read First and Second Maccabees? Shame on you. Go read it. It's good stuff. The reason I would encourage you to read it is because Daniel the prophet prophesied about that time. And they fulfill in, in uh, First and Second Maccabees prophecies of Daniel 11. Don't you want to read about the fulfillment of prophecy? Sure you do. Go read it. Okay. So full report next week. It's free on the internet. And uh, the good thing is, is you don't have to get an archaic translation of it. You can get a translation in modern English. How many of you guys like that? Okay. All right. Or I could give you my Greek translation of it. <laughs> All right. So faithful people, whether in the Bible or not, I think it's a source of encouragement for those that are struggling. And uh, just as the original audience of the book of Hebrews was... And we know that God has had faithful people throughout all the ages. Amen? Yep, throughout the ages. And uh, drawing encouragement from them, as the author is doing here. And I think that uh, many people uh, have a tendency to kind of elevate the humanity of the people in the Bible, so much so that James has to remind us that Elijah was a man like us. Why would he do that? Because we like to elevate them. And uh, I don't think that's healthy. They're, they're to come across to us in the scriptures as regular people, 
as ordinary people that have experienced an extraordinary God. Okay? And that's why I like this, these extra-biblical references. It makes things more tangible for us. Okay, um, the book of Maccabees. Uh, some of you that were, have been with us on Thursday night, we went through the intertestamental period. It's during that time in history that uh, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, okay, he was a, a Syrian uh, Greco king. Uh, the Jews called him Epimanes, the crazy person, and he was, he was, he was insane. And what he was doing was, after he had conquered Israel, he was trying to uh, coerce the Jews to essentially convert to paganism, and he was doing it by way of, of forcing them to eat pork that had been sacrificed to Zeus, okay? And, uh, and of course, uh, pork is uh, forbidden for the Jew to eat, but also in the ancient world, when you ate meat that was sacrificed to an idol, it was the same as worshiping the idol, the worshiping Zeus, and uh, not good. And there's a story in 2 Maccabees of these seven Jewish brothers and their mother who were all given the opportunity to renounce the God of Israel and, uh, and to eat the pork that had been sacrificed uh, to Zeus. And if they did not, they would be, if they, if they did convert, rather, they would be delivered from torture and death, but of course, I wouldn't bring it up if they did, they refused. And Antiochus had all of them tortured and eventually they were all murdered. Now, before I read their rather long account, uh, which is no substitute for you reading the whole account, okay? Uh, some people in the room need to hear and understand that the book of Maccabees is not inspired, okay? It's not part of the Bible. Uh, it's not inerrant. It's not inspired word of God. It's a history book, uh, most of which is accurate as far as we can tell, uh, but it's not scripture. Now let me read their story to you, which I believe the author of Hebrews is mentioning. <clears throat> it says, it also happened that seven brothers with their mother were arrested and tortured with whips and scourges by the king to force them to eat pork in violation of God's law. One of the brothers, speaking for the other, said, what do you expect to learn by questioning us? We are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. At that, the king in fury gave orders to have pans and cauldrons heated. These were quickly heated, and he gave the order to cut out the tongue of the one who had spoken for the others, to scalp him and cut off his hands and feet, while the rest of his brothers and his mother looked on. He was crazy. Okay? When he was completely maimed, but still breathing, the king ordered them to carry him to the fire and fry him. As a cloud of smoke spread from the pan, the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly with these words. The Lord God is looking on and truly has compassion on us. As Moses declaring in his song, when he openly bore witness saying, and God will have compassion on his servants. After the first brother had died in this manner, they brought the second to be made sport of. After tearing off the skin and hair of his head, they asked him, will you eat the pork rather than have your body tortured limb by limb? <clears throat> Answering in the language of his ancestors, he said, never. So he in turn suffered the same tortures as the first. With his last breath, he said, you accursed fiend, you are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the universe 
will raise us up to live again forever because we are dying for his laws. After him, the third suffered their cruel sport. He put forth his tongue at once when told to do so and bravely stretched out his hands as he spoke these noble words. It was from heaven that I received these. For the sake of of his laws, I disregard them. From him, I hope to receive them again. Even the king and his attendant marveled at the young man's spirit because he regarded his sufferings as nothing. After he had died, they tortured and maltreated the fourth brother in the same way. When he was near death, he said, It is my choice to die at the hands of mortals with the hope that God will restore me to life. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. They next brought forward the fifth brother and maltreated him. Looking at the king, he said, Mortal though you are, you have power over human beings, so you do what you please. But do not think that our nation is forsaken by God. Only wait, and you will see how his great power will torment you and your descendants. After him, they brought the sixth brother. When he was about to die, he said, Have no vain illusions. We suffer these things on our own account because we have sinned against our God. That is why such shocking things have happened. Do not think then that you will go unpunished for having dared to fight against God. Most admirable and worthy of everlasting remembrance was the mother, who seeing her seven sons perish in a single day, bore it courageously because of her hope in the Lord. Filled with a noble spirit that stirred her womanly reason with manly emotion, she exhorted each of them in the language of their ancestors with these words, I do not know how you came to be in my womb. It was not I who gave you breath and life, nor was it I who arranged the elements you were made of. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he in his mercy will give you back both breath and life because you now disregard yourselves for the sake of his law. Antiochus, suspecting insult in her words, thought he was being ridiculed. As the youngest brother was still alive, the king appealed to him, not with mere words, but with promises and oath to make him rich and happy if he would abandon his ancestral customs. He would make him his friend and entrust him with high office. When the youth paid no attention to him at all, the king appealed to the mother, urging her to advise her boy to save his life. After he had urged her for a long time, she agreed to persuade her son. She leaned over close to him and, in derision of the cruel tyrant, said in their native language, Son, have pity on me, who carried you in my womb for nine months, nursed you for three years, brought you up, educated, and supported you to your present day. I beg you, child to look at the heavens and the earth and see all that is in them, then you will know that God did not make them out of existing things. In the same way humankind came into existence, do not be afraid of this executioner, but be worthy of your brothers and accept death so that in the time of mercy I may receive you again with your brothers. She had scarcely finished speaking when the youth said, what is the delay? I will not obey the king's command. I obey the command of the law given to our ancestors through Moses, but you who have contrived every kind of evil for the Hebrews will not escape the hands of God. We indeed are suffering because of our sins, though for a little while our living Lord has been angry, correcting and chastening us. He will again be reconciled with his servants. But you, wretch, 
Most vile of mortals, do not, in your insolence, buoy yourself up with unfounded hopes as you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not yet escaped the judgment of the Almighty and all-seeing God. Our brothers, after enduring brief pain, have drunk of never-failing life under God's covenant. But you, by the judgment of God, shall receive just punishment for your arrogance Like my brothers, I offer up my body and my life for our ancestral laws, imploring God to show mercy soon to our nation and by afflictions and blows to make you confess that he alone is God. Through me and my brothers, may there be an end to the wrath of the Almighty that has justly fallen on our whole nation. At that, the king became enraged and treated him even worse than the others since he bitterly resented the boy's contempt. Thus he too died undefiled, putting all his trust in the Lord. Last of all, after her sons, the mother was put to death. The author says enough has been said about the sacrificial meals and the excessive cruelties. Second Maccabees chapter 1. It's not chapter 1, it's chapter 7, verse 1 through 43. You know, the story reads a lot like Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of you guys have read that? Yeah, of the persecuted church. Notice how well the story correlates with Hebrews eleven thirty-five. Through faith, they were tortured, they rejected deliverance, and they looked forward to the resurrection. You can't find correspondence anywhere in the Bible with that, but you can find it uh, in the book of Maccabees, of which the Jews of the first century, including our author, was very familiar with that history. Okay. And the fourth son actually makes reference to Daniel Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, in verse 14, where he refers to his own resurrection to life, but he says that Antiochus will not be resurrected to life. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Very interesting. And just as a side note, The mother speaks emphatically about God creating everything out from nothing. It's a great declaration in verse 28. It's, you know, you've heard uh, ex nihilo, that God created everything from nothing, from nothing. Very interesting. And back in Hebrews 11.35, the end of the verse says that they might obtain a better resurrection. How many of you tripped on that statement? A better resurrection. What is a better resurrection? Well, there are basically three uh, kinds of resurrections. Uh, There's the resurrection to everlasting life. Uh, There's the resurrection to everlasting contempt and destruction. And there's the resurrection back into this life, like the widow's son and Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. So which one of those is best? It kind of depends, actually. It kind of depends. It's certainly not the resurrection to everlasting contempt and destruction. So we could just put that off. Okay? And preferably not the resurrection back into this life. That is, if you're a believer. You get it? Okay? If you died as an unbeliever and you were resurrected back into this life, that was really good. Okay? Because now you have a second chance to receive the grace of God for salvation and then get the better resurrection. Okay. The better resurrection is, of course, dying as a Christian 
and awaking in his presence. Now, if I die and I have awoken in his presence, I do not want resuscitated. That would not be a better resurrection. Okay? Leave me alone. Leave me where I'm at. Okay? Of course, God's sovereignty will determine that. But um, I, it, once I go, I don't want to come back. How about you guys? Yeah. You come back kicking and screaming if you do. Yeah. So the seven sons and their mother in 2 Maccabees 7, uh, they didn't want to be resurrected back into this world. They wanted the best resurrection. They wanted to appear before God in heaven. Okay. Yeah. The believer's resurrection, Daniel 12. Let's look at verse 36 through 38. He says further, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. How many of you guys had fun this last week trying to find uh, places in the Old Testament uh, where that would fit? Anybody? Okay. Leave it to me then. <laughs> yeah. Verse 36, uh, that might be another reference to the Maccabean period, but the details of verse 37 uh, can definitely be found in the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, however you say his name, he was stoned in 2 Chronicles 24 for, for calling the nation to repentance. That's what he got. Jewish tradition reports that Isaiah, the prophet, was sawn in two. The scriptures don't tell us that. But that's what tradition tells us. Uriah the prophet was killed with the sword in Jeremiah 26. And wandering about in animal skins could be a reference to Elijah and to Elisha. Okay. Uh, now there's reasons why none of these can pertain to the New Testament. is because of the last two verses of the chapter. We'll get to that later. Um, the thing of... of Animal skins uh, could have been also during the Maccabean period because when Antiochus began to do his thing, the Jews were just running scared and running for their lives. In verse 38, the author mentions God's people wandering and hiding in dens and caves of the earth. Uh, he could have in mind the time of Gideon when uh, the Israelites were hiding for fear of the Midianites in Judges 6. Or 1 Samuel 13, when Israel fled from the Philistines, hiding in caves. Uh, David, we know, made frequent use of caves uh, when he was running from Saul in 1 Samuel 24. Could be during the time of Elijah when Jezebel was massacring the prophets and Obadiah hid a hundred of them, 50 in a cave, and he was providing their needs to them, 1 Kings 18.4. And then, of course, even Elijah hid in a cave from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19. Now, the author doesn't tell us which ones specifically, uh, but there's definitely some history there of God's people making use of caves. Yeah, lots of it. To hide from persecution, from death. Yep. And then the author 
sort of concludes here. He says that the world is not worthy of God's people. Not worthy. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I've often wondered, how would the world respond if Jesus was alive today? They would certainly crucify him all over again. Yeah. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 18 through 19. The world has always treated God's people as though we were not worthy of them or, or of it, simply because the world is in rebellion against God and it hates everyone that is loyal to him. And by loyal, I mean trusts him and obeys his word. Trusts and obeys his word. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you truly desire godliness, there's a consequence to that. It's persecution. So the implication there is that we can avoid all kinds of persecution uh, if we just avoid godliness. I don't advise it. Yeah. Now, godliness, it's interesting, the nature of it. It's not only you know, the opposite or the antithesis of worldliness, it's actually hostile toward it. It's actually hostile toward worldliness and vice versa. You know, we love the people of the world, but we're opposed to their worldliness. Isn't that true? It better be true. But the world neither loves us nor our godliness. Godliness is, is really a stench in the nostrils of the world. Because our godliness, our love and good works comes with a message. It's called repentance. Repentance. And you guys are very familiar with what's going on in our culture right now. Um, you can't say anything bad about anyone. And what's the newest one? The, well, I'm not even going to say it. But you can't be objective about anything because you're being judgmental. Uh, you're being, you're discriminating your whatever. But then if you do any of those things as a Christian, you're branded as the devil, right? Yeah. And they will come after you like crazy. So when we address sin, when we call people to repentance, it is not received well and the world becomes hostile toward us. I think that you should expect it um, and I think that you should get used to it. Get used to it. Yeah. So the world, as long as we live for God's righteousness, will either seek our silence or our extinction. Right now in America, it's, they're seeking our silence. Don't you think that's true? Just go to the corner and don't say a word. Because if you do, we will get you. We will come after you. We will destroy you. We'll get you. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's ironic, perhaps, that one day the people of God will inherit the earth. We know that we will. Jesus says we will in the Sermon on the Mount. We will inherit the earth. And at that time, worldliness is going to be flipped on its head 
Because as the scriptures say, the world, the earth is going to be filled with God's glory and his righteousness. And the world is going to take on the characteristics of its king. Won't that be nice? I'm going to like that a lot. But the unbeliever is going to be excluded. He's not going to be worthy of the world. So one day, worldliness is going to be transformed into godliness because Christ will rule supreme, as Psalm 2 and Daniel chapter 2 predict. But that's not yet. The thing that we have to deal with is right now. What about right now? Right now. You know, in the West, we do not see Christians nearly as destitute as those that we've been studying, but we do see Christians on the run or in hiding. Not in caves, of course, not literally fleeing, but figuratively do we do. They're running, they're running scared, they're hiding out. You know, the majority of those claiming faith are running from the culture war, which is actually a war against God, and it's a battle that's claiming our youth. That fact should awaken us. And Mike had addressed some of the statistics on youth that do not return to the church after they go to college because it's in college especially and it's, it's making its way very quickly into our high schools and our middle schools where the culture is being enforced. Right now in legislation in Washington, they're wanting to, to teach sex ed to our kindergartners. I'll tell you, there's one thing I don't want the world teaching my kids and that is something as sacred as sexuality. I don't want them touching that. That topic does not belong to them. It belongs to me and my family. Yeah? Yeah, they don't need to be touching that. But it's, it's in that environment where kids are intimidated. Uh, some of them are awed by their professors. They don't have answers. They don't know where to turn. They're impressed. And so they get sucked into that, and they, the majority will never uh, return to the faith. They're gone. Uh, who wrote the book, Already Gone? Is it Ken Ham? And then I think uh, Pearl wrote Jumping Ship, something like that. It's crazy. Yeah, the running from the culture war. Most Christians, it's taking our youth from us. Rather than providing a robust defense for the faith and then multiplying our ranks through the propagation of the gospel, the world has secured our silence through criticism and intimidation. They've secured it, by and large, and Christians are afraid. And from the perspective of our youth, it appears that we have no ground to stand on, that our propositions are false, and our faith is really no more than a fairy tale. Not. In addition to this, our, our youth have observed that so many in the church are so much like the world that it's hard to tell the difference between the two and this actually has advanced the cause of the world. Who likes a hypocrite? It's pretty unanimous. And one thing our kids need is they need constancy. They need consistency. They need, they need conviction. A friend of mine said, he says to young believers, if you don't have any convictions of your own, he says, borrow some of mine. Our kids need our convictions. And they need the convictions that we've drawn out of the scriptures, the truth. And they need to, to see that we believe those things strongly and that we live them accordingly. Not with perfection. It's not going to happen. Okay. But by God's grace. Yeah. 
The world seems to be gaining one victory after another <clears throat> without even a fight. Some in the church have said to the world, it's yours, you can have it. It's yours, you can have it. And they isolate themselves and their families, thinking they, they hold to the fundamentals of the faith without engaging the world. It's the same philosophy of, as monasticism minus celibacy. It has no place in the scriptures. No place. And still others have concluded that if you can't beat them, join them. We've seen individuals, um, popular Christian leader in the last couple of months has divorced his wife, forsaken the faith, and apologized to the unbelieving community uh, for his former biblical positions. I think it's his name, Matt Harris. Josh Harris. Yeah. So we've seen individuals, entire denominations, buckle to the demands of popular culture. They've embraced it, and they're celebrating its values. That, to me, is so crazy. It's crazy. You know, Paul said that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And the true church is, but many calling themselves the church have become the advocates of sin. Every, almost every major denomination today has collapsed into insanity, moral insanity. The things they permit, the things they promote. I was shocked by the list that I got the other day and their more recent statements of faith. And not just about you know, diminishing the inspiration of the Bible, but the elevation of all kinds of immorality. It's astonishing to me. It's amazing. Yeah. Very strange. The majority of Christians typically run and hide from the world or join their ranks. Their lifestyle's at odds with the profession. It's all compromise. And it's costing us dearly. It's costing us dearly. Among those that are not compromising, many are cowering. Rather than being well-equipped to humbly and courageously engage the culture, we're just kind of doing our best to go unnoticed, to kind of come under the radar, to not be heard. <clears throat> I'll tell you, the gospel, it's... That's just not how it works. The gospel is a proclamation. I've heard the old saying, you know, at all times preach the gospel and whenever possible use words. And always use words. Um, that's the gospel. It's, it's, it's a proclamation. Okay. Of course, our lives, our example is a proclamation. But example without proclamation is nothing. Okay. It's essentially moralism. It's what it is. And the moral people go to hell every day and they never come back. They need the gospel. Yeah. And this whole thing about being intimidated, um, I don't know why. I really don't. You know, we've got the truth. There's, there's no weakness in our message. Uh, there is no deficiency in the gospel. Now, there's plenty of weakness in ourselves, but the battle belongs to the Lord and the weapons that he's provided for us, they're superior. They're superior, okay? And the thing is, we could use a little training in wielding those weapons. We could use some training. But his, his grace is sufficient for that. The author's point is that we would strive for a good testimony, like 
the people in Hebrews chapter 11 who were commended for trusting God and standing strong in the faith. He, he began at the beginning of the chapter saying these received a good testimony. That is, they were commended by God for standing, for trusting and believing. And he's trying to relay that to his immediate audience in every generation that, that follows. That's us. He wants that same trust, that same courage to be reproduced in us so that God would commend us. He wants that. What believer doesn't want that? You know, I have to tell you, I, I think I've encountered just about every argument against the faith that is at least worth considering, and there's no reason for intimidation. In the marketplace of ideas, we, we, we've got it. I mean, I've, I've read the Agabad Vita, the holy book of the Hindus. <laughs> they ain't got nothing on the Bible, okay? I've read the Quran and the Book of Mormon, and I've read all that stuff. There's no competition out there. Last week, Mike demonstrated that, that the natural sciences and the rest, they say nothing about Darwinian evolution. Everything points to the Creator God, creating out of nothing. You guys, we have the weapons, we have the right answers. I was telling somebody the other day that, you know, when we teach the scriptures as the original authors meant, we have the privilege of being right. Not self-righteous, but we, we're right. Because it's God's word. We don't have to be intimidated. It's true, we just have to be equipped. Yeah. Every Christian wants to be commended. There's no good reason for intimidation. The scriptures, the faith, it stands under the severest scrutiny. It takes the day. You know, no more than, now more than ever, our culture, our, our kids need the truth of the gospel and the teachings of Christ. And now really is the time to be equipped, to be trained well in your weapons of, of warfare. We talked about David when he went before Goliath. He knew how to sling that stone. Amen. And we got to know how to. Now is not the time to run and hide. You know, fleeing to another city uh, was an option that Jesus gave for severe persecution. He did. He said, you may flee. And there were times when Paul fled, and there were other times Paul stayed and got stoned. But severity does not describe what we're experiencing here and now, at least in the West. So let's take advantage of this time. I would rather preach now than later. Because I don't like to be hit. <laughs> I've been hit before. I, it's not, I'm not fond of it. Okay? I'd rather do it now when it's a lot safer. Let's take advantage of the time and preach like mad to a lost world. Now, this is my uh, opportunity to pitch it. Uh, pretty soon, in the near future, we're going to be doing a cultural apologetics class, not just information, but we're going to be talking about how to engage the culture with the information. How many guys encounter people that believe in abortion? And you're like, I wish I could tell them more than just it's wrong. You want to speak, but, oh. Well, that's what the class is about. When it comes to things of abortion and sexuality and drugs and things like that, many things. 
providing answers and a way to answer. I would love to see all of our high school and college kids present for that and as many adults as we can get, okay? Uh, especially parents with young children so that you can be equipped for as they grow older, they will, you'll be able to answer their questions and to engage with them. I remember Isaac when he was, I don't know, he was probably four and we were walking into Walmart and he saw two boys holding hands and he looked and then he gave me the strangest look ever. And it was the perfect time for a conversation for a four-year-old that has the intuitive knowledge that that was not decent and in order according to God's design. And so I got to graciously talk him through it. Okay? That's what we want. We want to talk to our kids because the culture is coming at them 100 miles an hour like a fire hose and we need to do that. We need to answer. Okay? We need to engage with the world as well. We need to do it intelligently and we need to do it winsomely, humbly, with fear, as Peter says. So, Look forward to the class, okay? All right, let's move on. Let's finish the book. Verse 39 through 40, the author says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Two things in the verse. Uh, While they obtained a good testimony through faith, they did not experience a particular promise. They, they received the promise, or they heard it, but they did not experience it, but they had to wait to be perfected with us. Perfected with us. So those Old Testament believers, they received a good testament by faith. The author seems to mean that they're commended for their faith. But I think the same way, as we read about their story, don't we also commend them? It's not just God who has a good testimony about them, it's us. We commend them, we're encouraged by it. But regardless of their faith, they did not at that time experience this promise that was made to them. The fulfillment of this particular promise, the author says, would bring the people to perfection. Now by perfection, he means they would be brought to completion or fulfillment. You see, the anticipation of the Old Testament saint was the coming of Messiah, the coming of Christ, who would bring to reality all that their religion foreshadowed. And we've been talking about that in the book of Hebrews. All that's in the temple, the sacrifices and all that, it all was pointing forward to Jesus, who would accomplish those things in its reality and fulfill the things that they were anticipating. He would fulfill it all. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Fulfill. And he was fulfilling all of it for his people so that he could bring them to completion. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses in two ways. He fulfilled the moral demands of the law by keeping its precepts perfectly. He did all those things that pleased his father. And he fulfilled the legal demands of the law by dying for those who violated it, both. And then he fulfilled the prophets by bringing to pass in history 
all that they predicted about him, who he would be and what he would accomplish in this world for his people. And so it's apart from Christ that faith cannot be perfected. It can't be completed. It's incomplete and the hope of heaven cannot be realized. Christ is the peace that must be in place. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How long had the Old Testament saints been anticipating standing before the Father with their reward? Man, they did not receive the promise and they could not go into God's presence until Christ had given himself as a sacrifice and risen from the dead. They had to wait. Now there's all kinds of conjectures as to where they were waiting. I have my opinion. It's Abraham's bosom, but you can disagree with that. Okay. Waiting for the promised Messiah because they were just as dependent on his sacrifice as we are. Remember the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10.4, He says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. (laughs) They were giving sacrifice after sacrifice. Just imagine all of the gallons of blood spilt just in anticipation of Messiah because those things could never take away sin. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who actually takes it away. He's here. He's here. Yeah. All that was symbolic in the Old Testament was realized in Christ. So his sacrifice didn't just redeem those who believed following his death and resurrection, it was retroactive and picked up all the believers who had lived before his his death and resurrection. If you want to study that more, it's in Romans chapter 3. So anyway, what Jesus has said, what the New Testament is communicating, that all faith stands or falls as it's related to Christ. That he, Paul says, that he may have the preeminence, that he might be all in all. Yeah. So there you have it. Hebrews chapter 11. Next week, we'll get into the author's exhortation and instruction in chapter 12. All the implications of everything he's been talking about will now unravel in the last uh, two chapters. And maybe we'll be done by the next Super Bowl. (laughs) And uh, then you'll really clap when we go to Galatians. We are moving to the book of Galatians after this. I'm excited for that too, but not too excited because Romans or Hebrews chapter 12, 13 are important. And uh, so we'll get to them. All right, well, thanks for bearing with me. Please stand. And what's your reading assignment this week besides uh, Hebrews 12? You're accountable now. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, so many people before us, so many amazing stories, Lord. Even one I forgot to mention this morning. But Lord, ordinary people just like us have experienced an extraordinary God. Through faith, they've endured so many things. They've bore testimony, they've testified, they've preached, they've lived for you. There's no reason for us as the same kinds of people to not be able to do the same by your grace, Lord, through faith. 
So I pray that these stories, our time in Hebrews 11, would be an encouragement to us and that like them, through faith, Lord, we would strive for a good testimony. We want to hear your voice say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Lord, that's going to happen through obedience to your word and the preaching of the gospel. Lord, help us not to cower to the, the, the culture and its attempt to intimidate. Help us to stand firm. Help us to be equipped and humble and winsome. Lord, equip us for the sake of our own children as well, that when we pass them off, Lord, they're ready. They're ready. Their sword is brandished, and they're not running, but they're ready, Lord. So just encourage your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.